Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Leela Abu Lagod's essay titled Do Muslim Women Really Need Saving? Now before jumping into it, obviously uh, we can't ignore the fact that I'm presenting this with a backdrop of the revolution currently going on in Iran and I'm going to put some links to some organizations you can donate to which is really a good way to contribute and to help. Now with that being said, Part of what I want to do here is to problematize some of the narratives I've seen emerging in response to the revolution going on in Iran, mostly narratives espoused by Western feminists claiming that this, is, this has been a long time coming and women are finally starting to embrace Western attitudes and opposing Islamic rule and Islamic dictatorship and control over women. I'm going to problematize all of that, but before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can see some 300 episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see episodes I release every week, sometimes twice a week. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. Just type in the title and it should pop up. Same name across channels. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find the video on YouTube if you're into that. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. Take care of yourselves first. And yeah. Oh, and if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Now let's jump into this very important essay. Now this was written right after 9-11 uh, in 2002, I believe. And it's important to acknowledge that while I'm talking about this essay and I'm going to be making reference to what is currently going on in Iran, it's important to acknowledge that 20 years has passed. It's, the contexts are wildly different, but there are some common threads that I'm going to point to. So this text was written in 2002, presented in 2002, and it was Abu Glugod's effort to try to apply an anthropological approach to understanding cultural difference. Specifically, she's looking at the way in which Western feminists, very important political figures, she looks at Laura Bush, and we're going to talk about this as we go on, how all of these Western feminists and these figures viewed the war on terror as being more than just a way to redeem the United States and the violence inflicted against the United States during 9-11, but also they frame the war on terror as a way to liberate Muslim women from the oppression of Islam and from the oppression of Muslim men. So to do this, she reflects on, well, to begin, she reflects on two events. She reflects on a PBS interview she was invited to guest for, to be, to be a part of, where they were, there was this kind of blitz of effort among large media companies following uh, 9-11 and during the war on terror to interview Muslim women or women who were may have been Arabic who, or who have roots or connections to the Arabic world to interview these women and to get their perspective on what was going on with women in these areas to which she says quite bluntly and she asked them straight out when they invited her she asked whether or not they were talking about women's issues in other parts of the world and in other during other conflicts, so like in Ireland during the IRA or in Bosnia or in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, 
Were questions about women's liberation being raised there? Of course the answer is no, which demands us to ask what is it about Muslim women that motivates our asking and our trying to understand the plight of Muslim women in those contexts that doesn't get as much attention in other parts of the world when we know very well, and this is just doctrine for any feminist in any kind of capacity, patriarchy exists everywhere. But why is there a focus of fascination with Muslim women? Now she reflects on this blitz of interviews that had occurred not with her but with other uh, Muslim women as well and other women from that part of the world. She suggests that there is there was just this really unbelievable fascination with Muslim people, with Islam, and with that part of the world in such a way as to occult or to hide the fact that there were other motivating factors to what was going on in Iran and in Afghanistan and in Iraq following 9-11. So by focusing on the cultural attitudes at that time to suggest that women were oppressed by Islamic culture and the Islamic religion, what that did was it effectively hid or occulted the fact that the United States, among other quote-unquote Western nations, had participated for decades in exploiting that part of the world, in participating in, in establishing dictatorships, in establishing various economic dependencies with that part of the world that, of course, were going to have pretty sound effects on how that culture would develop in any sort of way. But by focusing instead, by transforming these historical issues and these historical events, reducing them to just a question about women's oppression, about the place of the veil or the burqa in these settings, just essentially hid all of these other possible ways to understand what was going on in that part of the world at that time. And we saw this play out as well in one of Laura Bush's uh, addresses to the nation in November 2001, I believe, just, just a few months after 9-11, a couple months after 9-11, where she was suggesting that through military operations by the United States and their its allies, they would effectively liberate women in Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq from Muslim oppression, which is kind of ironic to suggest that you know, through military operations of exploiting the land and killing some, in the case of Iraq, some 400,000 dead Iraqi civilians, somehow this can be equated with the project of liberation, which is just, is mind-boggling. But in any case, this was the belief and this, they held this to be wholly true. Now, of course, in all of this, there was very few, if any, efforts to help these women in any other ways. There was almost a myopic view that in this focus on the veil as being a sign of women's oppression, where if the veil was just cast away, then suddenly oppression would cease to exist. But of course, oppression works on many levels. And it's not like the United States was offering women from Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran asylum or offering them more education or offering them other ways that they might be able to empower themselves, which is just, you know, obviously they weren't interested in doing these things, which calls into question the integrity of their claim to wanting to liberate these 
women, which is already in itself. The very rhetoric of liberation is problematic in that it implies that you are somebody who houses the potential to liberate somebody else. And it demands that we ask to liberate from whom or from what and into whom, into what. To liberate someone is not to remove all possible uh, social codes and forms of conduct. It is to instead instantiate, to establish another set of codes and rules for people to follow that the liberator views themselves to be more just. And in some cases, of course, willing to acknowledge that things are gonna, they might even be better. But in this case, looking at all of the historical circumstances, it really does not seem like that is the case. And really to much of their surprise, that is these Western feminists, after the so-called war on terror had concluded and the project was done, and there's that, you know, there was that talk or that address given by George Bush on the big boat, the name of which I don't want to look up. But anyways, the big boat where, with the big banner that said mission accomplished, and women were still wearing burqas and headscarves and veils in that part of the world, which is like, wait a second, if liberation has occurred, which it hasn't, but if it has, isn't it possible that women might still want to wear what they want to wear? Like what, an, what a radical idea, what a radical turn of events that women might want to do what they might want to do and they might do those things. And it's also important to problematize or to interrogate nuance, probably the best word, our discussion of the burqa in, in its entirety, where it is not some homogenous figure imposed onto women by uh, the fact that in 19, 1995, 1996, 1996, the Taliban had really taken over in the case of Afghanistan, really taken control. The burqa wasn't just imposed on women in that way. Uh, of course, there are examples of women being forced to dress a certain way, and obviously that's wrong. But the history of the burqa is much more complicated where it emerged out of the Pashtun region of Afghanistan. And it was, um, it was a way by which to demonstrate affiliation between women's lives in the public sphere and their connection to uh, home life. Where there's this quote that Abu Lugod gives us that I think is quite, it's quite powerful in really illustrating this, this element of the burqa or this the purpose that the burqa served in this context, where she writes that such veiling signifies belonging to a particular community and participating in a moral way of life in which families are paramount in the organization of communities, which is just like, okay, I mean, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to believe and it's part of their culture. And what is fundamentally wrong with that? Of course, the answer is nothing, but there's this strange obsession in the West with unveiling everything, with, with making everything apparent by stripping everything and making, making everything quite obscene and making it quite apparent. So it's no surprise then that women would still want to wear the burqa, even if, imagine if Islam ceased to be a religion on earth, which obviously that wouldn't happen, but if just one day for some reason we all forgot about it, there are still the cultural roots of the burqa, of the hijab within these communities that won't just go away. But it also serves another pretty useful function in this context in the West to focus our attention on that part of the world and say that that is where women's oppression occurs. Now, I, 
I've seen many TikToks about this and people on TikTok explain this stuff a million times better than I ever could. But there was one TikTok that I've, I've seen, I saw so long ago that I can't give credit to it because I, I haven't been able to find it again. But it was this person describing how the double standard that occurs in this discussion where people in the West say that women are oppressed in Islamic countries for wearing a hijab or wearing uh, a burqa. And then this person looked at the way in which in the West, uh, on a beach, women are expected to wear bathing tops, whereas men are not. Where anatomically, like the, the difference, there's not really a difference there, uh, especially with the fact that some cis men and cis women chest sizes are gonna be very similar. Yet there's this belief that women have to wear uh, a bathing top, whereas men do not. Now imagine if one day uh, another country were to roll in with tanks and say that, oh, the women, all you women are free. You no longer need to wear bathing tops. It seems totally absurd that women would just be like, yes, of course, no more bathing tops in this context. I'm sure many of them would still like to wear it. It might make them feel safer. It might make them feel like they aren't going to be objectified by the predatory men around them. And this is just kind of a maybe bridging on a silly example to demonstrate this double standard, the belief that women's oppression occurs over there. And over here, nothing bad is going on. And we keep selling that idea. We repeatedly say it to convince ourselves that the problem isn't here. It's over there. It helps us sleep at night. And it makes it so that we don't actually have to confront the issues that we constantly face and that we, in my case as a man, we perpetuate in this world, in our setting. And we see this going on right now in the case of Iran, where people are co-opting what is a very powerful revolution occurring in that part of the world to say that, oh, this is women trying to adopt Western values. Like, thank goodness, women are finally seeing the horrors of having to wear a certain type of clothing, when that is absolutely not the point here. The point, in my mind, is that the imposition of any kind of clothing is obviously going to be wrapped up in a historical context, and it should be up to women to decide what they want to wear. And it should really be that simple. And it is still violent for people in the Western context to mandate that women can't wear hijab or can't wear a burqa and that they have to dress a certain way. How is that any different from people forcing women or punishing women with violence if they don't wear a hijab, if they don't wear a certain kind of clothing? And it's just important to really maintain and understand that double standard that's always at operation here and that we've seen historically really have a lot of, have quite a gravitas to it, have a lot of cultural force. Not to mention, of course, that like in this context, there doesn't seem to be any efforts to try to liberate nuns in, in churches for having to wear headscarves. It's always just Muslim women for some reason, just a focus on that. Now to conclude, Abu Lugod isn't trying to say or advocate for a kind of cultural relativism as though there's just differences and that's really, that's it, right? There's no right and wrong, which she, she suggests that anthropologists tend to do. Her point is that there are uh, there are differences and there there is right and wrong. It is wrong for people to impose onto other people what they have to wear. It is wrong for the West to go into Afghanistan and commit the atrocities that it has 
from for for decades it is wrong for people in the west to suggest that women can't dress a certain way or to punish them if they dress a certain way moreover it is wrong to just implicitly associate feminism with the west and you know just uh, women in the muslim world as just being innately oppressed and the reason for that is that there are muslim feminists there are feminists who imagine a world that is islamic and that it is free the focus should not be on what women are wearing. The focus should be on creating a more just and equitable world that respects differences, doesn't try to impose one way of seeing the world on others. And it really the same in any context. If anyone in any context is forcing someone to dress a certain way or they'll be punished for it, that is wrong. It's something that we can agree with. And so we have to be making sure, we have to make sure that our project is designed in such a way as to accommodate differences, to welcome differences and respect them. And yeah, and that's essentially her essay. Uh, I, I hope that I did it justice and that it was illuminating. And if there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it or anything I omitted, I'd love to hear about it. You can check out some links in the description if you wanna contribute to some organizations working to help women in Iran right now, which is ironic, of course because the title of the, the essay being, Do Muslim Women Really Need Saving? But we can discern saving from helping. I'm not trying to save women, we're trying to provide support uh, when they need it and when they ask for it, not imposing support onto them or imposing liberation onto them. And yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and uh, catch you next time. Take care.